here. I read about a story, and this is going to fit real nicely with our chapter or our, our study tonight in Exodus. But I read about a, uh, a pastor who passed on the pulpit to a, a guest speaker. And the guest speaker was preaching. He's going for it. And uh, every once in a while, you know, the crowd would yell out an amen. And, and he just kept going. Every time he kind of heard that amen and stuff, he just started getting a little more fired up, you know. He just kept going and going until the, the, the regular preacher of the church just kind of finally started saying every few sentences, amen, Pharaoh, amen, Pharaoh. And the guy just heard, he's like, gets even more excited. He starts going and he just goes a long time. And then after the message, he goes to the preacher. He's like, hey, that was awesome. But what was the amen Pharaoh all about? And the preacher said, I was trying to tell you to let my people go. <clears throat> so if you need tonight to say an amen Pharaoh, I will get the word loud and clear for you. All right. Okay. So we are in Exodus chapter one as we continue this flyover scripture, soaring through scripture at this rapid rate. And uh, we're moving from our Genesis account now to our Exodus account. And in the book of Genesis, we saw it was that book of beginnings, right? We saw God's creative works and God's calling of a people. Now, it's very easy to look at the creative works of God and think, oh man, this is kind of the pinnacle of God's work. This is the greatest work. But what's really a wonder to behold, what's really a great work is God's redemptive work. His creative work, oh, incredible, wonderful, glorious. But it's his redemptive work that really begins to stand out as the greatest of God's work. Because it's easy to just go ahead and make something. But with a redemptive work, there is a quality or an element of love that comes behind it. Creation reveals God's greatness, but redemption reveals God's grace. Because now he comes alongside, in Exodus we're going to see, to redeem a people, to buy a people back, to make a people his very own. And that is all about love and grace that he shows towards these people here. The book of Exodus is all about God's redemption. There's only a few chapters in God's word that really highlight or focus on creation. But the whole of the book here, the Bible, is that underlying interwoven thread of the story of God's redemption for mankind. So the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt is really what this is about. And and that whole theme of redemption we see in the book of Exodus is really a great picture of what Jesus did for us and the redemption he purchased for us on the cross. Now the name Exodus means exit or departure or the way out. And Jesus has definitely provided for us a way out from our sinful life and from the penalty for that sin. So we're going to see many wonderful types and pictures in our study here through Exodus. Every New Testament theology has an Old Testament picture to it. Understand that. Every, every New Testament theology, you're going to find that kind of mentioned, spoken of, or illustrated in the Old Testament force. And much of the New Testament doctrine cannot be fully understood without having that kind of understanding of the various events and symbols that are even found for us here in Exodus. For example here, Egypt becomes a type of the world system, a system that is against God's ways. Pharaoh, he becomes a type of Satan, or you could say maybe the Antichrist. He's prideful, lying, he's seeking praise for himself. Israel becomes a type of the church, delivered from the power of the world and set on a pilgrim journey. Moses is a type of Christ, he's God's prophet and deliverer the manner the manner for us pictures 
the bread of life, which Jesus says, I am the bread of life. The rock that is struck is a picture of the smitten Christ through whose death the Holy Spirit is poured out. We'll get to that hopefully tonight. And of course, the Passover. Uh, Again, a major theme in the book of Exodus. A great picture to us of the sacrifice of Christ by which we gain life through his shed blood for us. Now, the Hebrew title for this book is this word, Wael Shemoth, which is basically the opening phrase of this book, the verse Verse 1, chapter 1 starts off by saying, now these are the names of the children of Israel. That's what that Hebrew title really just says. These are the names. That was kind of how they, how they titled the book of, of Exodus. But the word Exodus is from two Greek words, two Greek words, ek, out of, and hodos, which means departure. All right? So this is where we get the idea of, or the, the term Exodus. It just speaks of that departure coming out of. And the key verse that we'll see is in Exodus 20, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So here's how we're going to be breaking this, this study down in the book of Exodus. And again, a lot of these kind of outlines, they, they come from um, Skip Isaac, who's gone through this, this scan through the Bible, this um, you know Bible from 30,000 feet. So a lot of these outlines are taken from him. But here's what... Uh, we're going to look at domination, first of all, the bondage of Egypt, chapters 1 to 12. We're going to see the liberation, which is the breakout from Egypt in chapters 13 to 18. We're going to see revelation in chapters 19 to 31, which is the bringing of the law, God speaking to them, revealing himself to them in his law, his plans. And then, lastly, we're going to see identification, which is the birth pains of the nation, chapters 32 to 40, as God starts to kind of bring them together and, and, and seeing their identity forming as this nation that's set apart for God. So domination to liberation to revelation to identification. So let's look at chapter 1. Let's read a few verses here. Verse 1 to 12 says this. And hopefully you got a Bible. Follow along with me. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already, and Joseph died, all his brothers, and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty. And the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and go up out of the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities. Pithom and Ramses, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Egypt. So that sets up for us now the backdrop really of what we're working with and dealing with, seeing the people growing in Egypt. We've read that God had Joseph appointed to Egypt to bring his family there. 70 of them come into Egypt, as verse 5 tells us. And after Joseph died, the Hebrew people just continued to, to multiply. They grew abundantly, it says, to where then a new Pharaoh came onto the scene who had no connection with this Hebrew people, didn't understand who Joseph was, the significance of Joseph, who was second in command in Egypt, just didn't know about Joseph. 
And so he saw these foreigners now that are dwelling in the land of Egypt, this new Pharaoh, sees these foreigners as really a, a, a rapidly expanding group and a potential threat. So this new Pharaoh isn't too happy or excited about what he's seeing. And he tries to make their life harder by this increased bondage and labor. So his hope here is to really afflict them to where they'll no longer be a fruitful people. He's just going to wear them down, grind them down to where they're just not going to be as fruitful and multiplying, hopefully. And the Pharaoh issued another order in even a more drastic way to try to curb this rapid population growth. This time he said that all the midwives must take any of the sons that are born to any of the Hebrew ladies in the land and they're to take their children and cast them into the Nile, their firstborn. Just the, the boys, not the girls, but the boys are to be cast into the Nile, the firstborn. But these midwives, it tells us in verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. Man, that's how it should be for us, isn't it? That we should have a greater fear for God than we do for any other kind of person or, or law or government that's in the land. That we should honor God first. When the apostles were told in Acts chapter 5 not to preach the name of Jesus any longer, what did they say? They said, we ought to obey God rather than men. They're just like, hey, all right, you can tell us all you want to do that, but we're under a, a higher command here. We're following a, a greater law than what you're presenting to us. And so that's what we want to follow. Now, some might wonder, why did the nation of Israel have to stay so long in Egypt? Because, listen, it's been about 350 years since the, the Joseph's family moved to Egypt to where we're at now in the first chapter of Exodus. About 350 years. So why have they been so long in this place known as Egypt? Why did they even have to go there to begin with? Well, a couple of reasons, I think. God had his people in Egypt to, first of all, prepare them for the promised land. And secondly, to protect them from potential problems. To prepare them for the promised land and to protect them from potential problems. You see, as they're hanging out in Egypt, they're going to arrive there as a small upstart nation. Like we read, only 70 of them get in there to begin with. But they're going to leave Egypt with about 2 million of them. They're going to be ready now to take on the challenges that are going to lay ahead, especially as they move into the promised land. They're going to become a mighty nation. And you see, God knew that that's going to happen by taking them into Egypt. Why? Well, secondly, because it's going to be, they're going to be protected from potential problems. You see, if God had them remain in the land of Canaan, well, what's happening in the land of Canaan? Well, there's just a lot of pagan practices going on. Yes, there was in Egypt as well, but we know that as Israel dwelt in Canaan, they began to follow the practice of the Canaan. They began to intermix a little bit. Whereas in Egypt, the people of Egypt saw the Hebrew people as these shepherds. They were defiled people and they would want nothing to do with them. So they're given their own land in Goshen and God knows that as they're dwelling in, in Goshen, they're not going to be affected, impacted as they would in Canaan as they will be in, in Egypt. The people in Egypt aren't going to want to have anything to do with them. So basically, God brings them into this kind of protective womb that is Egypt, where they're able to grow as a mighty nation without being defiled, dragged down, as they would be in Canaan, so that they can grow as a mighty nation. You see, God has this all worked out, all planned out for their good. And he's going to lead them out now at just the right time when they're going to be numerous in number, strengthened together so they can follow along with what God has for them. Well, chapter 2, Moses is born. 
And here we really see the sweet sovereignty of God. I'm so thankful that God is in control of all things. And notice how we see that played out here. It says in verse 1, And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. Remember how, who's writing this, right? It's Moses. Moses also wrote about himself that he was the, the meekest man, right? Mildest man. And here he is writing just about how beautiful of a child he was. Just had to get that in there, didn't he? All right. Verse 3, but when, when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept, so she had compassion on him, and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew woman, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and randomly selected. No. Went. God's got this all worked out, right? The right people in place. The maiden went and called the child's mother. This is Moses' sister that's going and getting Moses' mother now to say, hey, all right, here we go. You're going to raise Moses right now. Then Pharaoh's daughter, verse 9, said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him and the child grew. She brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. So she, beca- uh, so she called his name Moses saying, because I drew him out of the water. And that's what the name Moses or Moshe means in, in Hebrew is to draw out. And so this is an amazing thing is that the Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the water to bathe at just this time that they're kind of releasing Moses to, to try to escape this, this you know, death penalty upon him. And the Pharaoh's daughter sees him in the bulrushes, goes and calls for him to be brought to him and selects this woman who happens to be Moses' sister to go get somebody to nurse him. And now Pharaoh's daughter is paying Moses' mom to raise him. How about that, right? God's like, you know what? I want you to release this child. Don't worry. I got it covered. In fact, as you release it, I'm going to provide something even greater for you than what you would ever imagine. And that's so often how God works. Sometimes he's wanting us just to go and release things that we think, I can't give this up. And yet it's in releasing it that God wants to do an even greater work in your life as he's doing now with Moses' mother here. So Moses is, is, is given over to Pharaoh's daughter, Moses' mom, raising him. And then at a certain time, he's brought into the palace and he's raised up now in the palace. Now, there's not a lot mentioned about Moses' upbringing here in Exodus. You have to look at Exodus, or sorry, you have to look at Acts chapter 7, verse 20 to 23 for more info. And it says there that Moses in Acts 7, verse um, 22, I think it is, that he was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. So we don't have a lot about his upbringing in Exodus, but Acts lets us know that he was raised up, trained up under the, the blessings, the riches, the, you know, just living in the palace and the, the wealth that, he, that came with that. He had a great education to where he was well-learned and in all wisdom, and he was mighty in words and deeds. Josephus tells us that this daughter was Thermethis and that she was the only child of Pharaoh at this time. That would mean that Moses was being raised up to be the successor to the throne, to be the next Pharaoh. 
But Moses now, he just kind of skips over 40 years of his life. And he takes us now, verse 11, to a time when he starts to realize that his people are the Hebrew people that are there in the land being oppressed. So he takes a little stroll and he sees one of his people being mistreated by an Egyptian. And <laughs> interesting, it says in verse 12, when he sees his, man, his, his fellow Hebrew being mistreated, verse 12, he looked this way and that way. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Wow. So Moses takes issue with his own people being mistreated that way. Even though he's raised basically as an Egyptian, he seems to know that I'm not like these people, but I'm attached to these people. And he starts to take issue with how they're being treated. But he takes matters in his own hand. He looked this way, and he looked that way, and he witnesses, but what he should have done was look up and realize, how can I do this? How can I do this wicked thing? And that would be something that would be very heavy against him. So Moses sees this, and then another time he goes out, and people begin to challenge him when he starts to kind of break up a little dispute. And they're like, what are you going to do? Kill us like you did the other guy? And so Moses knows that words, words getting out on the street here now that he's a murderer, right? And so he flees and he flees into desert country, into Midian. Now, God had great things in store for Moses and his people, but Moses needed this time of preparation and purging. Because there are some things that Moses had to obviously work out now and before moses can shepherd a whole nation which god has him in mind to do he'll have to learn just the art of shepherding all right it's been well said that moses spent 40 years of his life as a prince trying to be something the next 40 as a shepherd discovering he was really nothing and the final 40 as israel's leader proof that god can take nothing and make something out of it so here's those kinds of stages developing in Moses's life well he's out now in Midian he's out tending to his father-in-law Jethro's sheep or his livestock there and Moses has a pretty interesting encounter in chapter three God calls out to Moses in an unusual way because God appears to him now in a burning bush there's a fire going on in the bush but the, bur- the bush isn't being consumed all right and that's kind of a, has become a, a, a very interesting illustration of Israel as a nation in itself. Because here they've gone through so many fires of tribulation and yet they've never been extinguished, put out. They continue to exist just as this bush continues to be even through this fire. And so God calls out, speaks out to, to Moses and he reiterates to Moses just the covenant that God's already established with Abraham. And then repeated it to Isaac and to Jacob. But now God's bringing this word to Moses. Basically, God says, Moses, you're the guy that's going to lead my people into the land of blessing that I have for them. It's the land that I've promised to my people as I did with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And I'm reminding you, you're the guy now that's going to lead my people into the promised land. Now, interestingly, this voice identifies himself as God, but he's the angel or the messenger of the Lord. And we saw last week how that angel of the Lord in scripture is that Christophany. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. So we read that it's the angel of the Lord that appears. But then, but then God begins to speak and just reveal now who he is. Now, Moses rather gets a little stage fright at the idea that, that God's calling him 
to a very significant role of taking his people out of Egypt and bringing them into the promised land. And Moses begins to get a little stage fright. He's like, me? I'm not the guy, God. I can't do that. He starts coming up with all these excuses. One thing he says is that, well, who am I going to say sends me? Who should I say is sending me? Look at verse 13. Chapter 3, verse 13, it says this. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall, you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Now, this is a key passage for us. It's really revealing to us the identity, the nature, the character of God for us. God says, I am who I am. I am has sent me to you. That's what you're to say, Moses. That's what God reveals. Now, this is the name Yahweh or Jehovah, Jehovah. It's taken from the Hebrew verb, Hayah, meaning I am. Sounds like a karate term, but it's Hayah, and it's, it means I am. Now, the Hebrew people saw this name as sacred. And so, all through history, they would never spell out that name in full or speak in full. They'd use only the consonants Y-H-W-H. That's known as the Tetragrammaton. So, when they came across this Tetragrammaton, they would only say or replace it with Lord, which in the Hebrew is Adonai. So, this name, I am, it's a great one. Especially here for Moses, as he's starting to get a little lacking in confidence as he's coming up with excuses how can i do this how can i speak who should i say sent me well god begins to remind him just to his very name the name i am really means self-existing one or to be to become come to pass in other words moses as he's thinking up all these excuses as to what could happen and trying to get out of this call that god has upon his life God simply says, listen, Moses, I'm going to be all things to you and for you. Whatever you need, I'm going to be that for you. Basically, God's saying, I have you covered, Moses. Whatever you feel like you're lacking, I am. I will be. I've got it covered, Moses. Yeah, you can't do it, no doubt. I'm not relying on you. I'm going to do the work through you because I am. I will take care of it. I will bring it to pass, Moses. And how we need to know that ourselves. Because we serve the great I am. Whatever you need tonight. God wants to fill that for you. God is that for you. God will be that for you. Jesus finally referred to himself with these great I am statements in the gospel of John. And in them Jesus referenced what he would be and do for us. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I'm the resurrection of life. Jesus revealed for us all that he would be, all that he would do for us. Everything that we possibly need is wrapped up and it's found in God and it's found in his very name and his nature, his character towards us. So, chapter four, Moses is still struggling through this call. He's not very confident about going before his people and wondered if they'll even believe him or not. So, 
God says, Moses, verse 2, what is that in your hand? He said, a rod. And he said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. I mean, he got freaked out by his own rod. Throws the ground, ah! And he ran. How many people would do that themselves? Yes. All right. I know many of you that would. All right. I just walked by Emily's office, and she jumps. She freaks out. My goodness. Okay. All right. She's jumpity. That would send her into a tailspin. But the Lord then said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. So God begins to reveal this miraculous to Moses, to say, Moses, come on. Do you know who you're dealing with here? You're worried about how this is all going to work, how it's going to play out. You just need to trust me. Because I got this covered. The Lord had him also put his hand in, up against his booze and props in his cloak. And Moses took it out and his hand was leprous, white as snow. God, again, just in an instant changing things. Showing Moses, man, I can do the impossible. Puts it back in, brings it out, it's perfectly fine again. So again, God is trying to bring Moses to that place of just having confidence, not in himself, but in the power of the Lord. Is there anything that our God cannot do. And that's the power and the might that we go forward in. Now, still fearful, Moses, over blowing it and messing up in his speech, he continues to question God in chapter 4. Again, it's one thing to be confident or unconfident in self, but we should never lack confidence in what God can do. And that's where Moses was failing here. Nevertheless, God allows Moses and Aaron to now team up because Moses is thinking, I can't speech, man. I can't talk. I can't talk tonight either. Moses, I can't talk, God. I'm going to stutter. I'm going to mess up. But remember what we read in Acts 7, that he was mighty in, in speech, in word. And yet here he is worried about speaking before people. She says, my brother Aaron, he's the guy that's got to do this. So God, in his grace, allows Moses and Aaron to team up now to be the group that will go before Pharaoh. So chapter 5 now reveals for us this, this first encounter with Pharaoh. So Moses and Aaron, they come together and they meet with Pharaoh. And it couldn't have gone any worse. That's <laughs> to what they were expecting. They asked Pharaoh for time off to go into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord. Pharaoh, we need a break right now. We want to go and just meet with God. We want to go out in the wilderness. We can't do it here in your land. We want to go in the wilderness and meet with the Lord. Pharaoh's response was that, says, I don't know your God. I don't really care. I'm not going to let you go and worship him. And he just thought, you people are just being too lazy. You're just trying to get off work. And so what Pharaoh did is he increased their labor by removing their straw in the building of their bricks said, you got to produce the same quota of bricks, but I'm going to take away the straw from you. I'm going to make things even worse. That got pretty serious. That got pretty heavy. See, now they couldn't, you know, kind of supplement the material. It would have been harder to form the bricks and make them all whole and to have as many made in a day. So Pharaoh just increases their labor. It's, it's very interesting, actually. Um, in archaeological finds where they've, they've dug around er- areas here, in Egypt, that they found some old structures that date back to this time where they noticed that the bricks at the bottom of the buildings are all made with a certain kind of material with, with hay and straw in it. And as it goes up, it starts 
removing some stuff as it gets even higher up. They find the bricks are made without any of the straw. And hey, basically, they're finding that the account here in God's word is exactly what they're experiencing out there in these archaeological finds. It's very interesting. So he increases the labor. And the Hebrew people now, they begin to complain against Moses. So I mean, like I say, it could not have gone any worse for Moses, right? I mean, uh, God just in the back of his mind saying, man, I, I just, Moses, just go for it. It'll be okay. He doesn't reveal to Moses what's going to happen because God knows, like, if I tell Moses what's really going to happen, man, there's no way he's going to go, all right? But God's got this all figured out, worked out. Do you ever wonder why sometimes God doesn't reveal the whole picture to us sometimes? Because we wouldn't go if we were revealed or if God revealed to us what he has in store sometimes, we would never move. I'd be like, God, nah, I don't want any part of that. Sometimes God just says, go, and we'll begin to show you what's going to happen. But in God's grace and strength, he helps us. He, he takes care of us. He leads us through. He brings us through to the other side. But man, how sometimes it's better not to ask God what's in store for me. Just, just start to go and just trust the Lord along the way. So chapter 6. God now begins to assure these guys of their deliverance, all right? God assures that all this trouble is just setting the scene now for a greater work that God is going to do. Look at chapter 6, go down to verse 6, and here's what we read. Exodus 6, verse 6, Therefore say to the children of Israel, I'm the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. So Moses really wonders now how Pharaoh will ever listen to him if his own people aren't going to listen to him. He hears what God wants to do, but Moses is still like, I'm a man of uncleanness. If my own people are kind of complaining and coming at me, how is Pharaoh even going to listen to me? But God now takes him through his family lineage now from verses 14 down, but not the whole family, just dealing with with, um, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Everything, let me read this here. Everything in the list suggests that God's choosing of Moses had nothing to do with natural advantage or ability. The list stops after naming only three of Jacob's sons, Reuben, Simeon, and and Levi. Levi. Okay. Simeon and Levi. For its object had been reached. Moses and Aaron sprang, not from the firstborn, Reuben, but from Levi, which was Jacob's third son. And Moses didn't even come from Levi's oldest son, but from Kohath, his second son. And Moses was not even the oldest son of his father, for Aaron was older. See, Moses' calling and election of God were a gift of grace and not based on rights and privileges of birth. Moses isn't sitting there saying, God, I can't go. It's not like Moses was able to say, I know I'm the, I know it looks like I'm the person based on lineage. He couldn't even say that. Because he didn't even come from the firstborn. He didn't even come from the firstborn of his own family. This was God's hand selection of a man that God said, I'm going to do this work in you and through you. And Moses needed to trust in the Lord in these things. And so Moses is going to definitely go through this, this time of training and prep he's, he's been through. But God's been just working in him and he's going to continue to do so. Look at chapter 7. So Moses and Aaron go again now to Pharaoh. 
Look at what the Lord says to Moses in verse 1 of chapter 7. See, I've made you as God to Pharaoh. And Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. And Aaron, your brother, shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. God just reminds him, man, I'm going to do a work through you. I'm going to make you like God before Pharaoh. I'm going to use you to do great wonders and show great things. Look at verse 10 of chapter 7. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and they did so. Just as the Lord commanded, and Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, so the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents, but Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. I love that. That's so cool. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. So we're going to see a bit of a, a pattern in these first couple plagues that are going to emerge we're going to see that moses and aaron are going to do great works or god's going to do a great work but the magicians of egypt are going to copy them they're going to replicate them or counterfeit them but understand something that's all that the enemy is able to do counterfeit the work of god Now, if these guys want to impress people, if they want to impress Pharaoh, if they want to show Pharaoh that, oh no, we're yet greater, well then, remove the bloody water of the Nile. Remove the second plague of frogs. Like, take away the frogs, but what do they do? All they do is replicate the plague, and they make matters worse. They add to it. That's all the enemy can do, isn't it? The enemy might promise you that he's going to make things better, but all he can do is make things worse that's what these magicians are going to do now each of these plagues are going to be a direct hit on one of the many egyptian gods or or kind of an aspect of their livelihood so look at the first plague there verse 14 of course you know this one is the water of the nile becomes blood now the nile of course was really that life source there in egypt they depended on the nile it was sacred to uh, Osiris. And so this is a direct hit upon a very important life source, that lifeblood for Egypt and for their their crops, their watering, their everything. And so this is a huge hit on it. The second plague now in chapter 8 is, of course, frogs. Now, Heka was the frog-headed goddess. And Frogs to start to emerge on the land as God sends forth, this, sends forth this second plague. There's frogs everywhere. And what do the sorcerers do? The magicians, they replicate it. They add more frogs to their own problem, right? I mean, they want to show something great. Let's remove the frogs. Oh, we don't want these things here. But they don't. They add to it. And with this God now, this, this goddess, Heka, it was an offense to even kill a frog. So now they got all these frogs there and they can't do anything with them. As much as you like to step on them, get them away somehow, kill them off, you can't do anything about them because it goes against their religious, you know, uh, tradition now there in Egypt. Third plague, lice. Now that would have brought a stop to their worship as their priests needed to remain clean and hygienic. Now with this plague, the magicians were unable to counterfeit it. They tried. But they weren't able to do it. And they fade off the scene now, but not before a very bold proclamation in verse 19 of chapter 8. Look at that. 
Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them just as the Lord had said. Wise words now coming from these magicians. This is the finger of God. This is an act of God. We can't do this. We can't replicate this. This is an act of God now. And yet Pharaoh continued to have his heart grow hard. Fourth plague comes and that's flies. Now some have believed these to be beetles or scarabs, which were sacred to Ra, the sun god. Gold scarabs have been found in some tombs. They were a symbol of eternal life. So these flies or these beetle-like things now emerge on the land. And with this plague, the Lord made a distinction between Egypt and his people that were dwelling in the land of Goshen there in Egypt. The flies didn't bother the, the Hebrew people, didn't affect them. So God's beginning to make a distinction now between his people and the people of Egypt. And Pharaoh says that the Israelites can go and worship their God. And he now asked for prayer for deliverance in verse 28. So Pharaoh said, verse 28, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far. Intercede for me. Isn't that great? It's like, Pharaoh, what's the matter with your gods? You got enough of them. They're not doing the trick for you. Now Pharaoh's like starting to realize there's a difference with the God that these Hebrew people are worshiping. Intercede for me. And yet he reneged now on them being able to go as he'll do oftentimes. He'll kind of, you know, try to barter with them a little bit. Okay, you can go if this happens, if you do this. But never did let them go to even go and worship their Lord for a few days. That's all they were asking for is a few days to go and worship the Lord. Well, chapter 9, now we see the fifth plague come, and this is death to the Egyptian livestock. Egypt was a land of zoolatry where they worshipped animals. Apis was a black bull that was worshipped. That was a very sacred thing in Egypt. And of course, you know, when Israel went on, when Moses was up on the mountain for too long, what did they do? They formed a golden calf to worship. No doubt they picked that up there in Egypt. Sixth plague now, boils. Again, the priests were to be spotless. So now with boils coming, the priests weren't able to serve in their temples. It was again a direct hit upon their own religion, basically, and their gods. Seventh plague comes, and that's hail. Now, Egypt is a land with minimal rainfall. There's less than one inch a year of rain that falls in Cairo. Less than one inch a year. So rain was super valuable. Now, hail comes down, and the goddess of the air that they had was a goddess by the name of Nut. And she was a real nutcase, let me tell you, all right? But she was not providing a lot of rain, and yet God now is kind of showing her up with this hail that comes. And not just uh, a hail, but, you know, fire coming down as well. Uh, I believe it was, yeah, hail and fire. So, um, now look at verse 27 of chapter 9, verse 27. And it says, And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron. And said to them, I have sinned this time. <laughs> is that great? I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous. And my people and I are wicked. It's like Pharaoh kind of has this, you know, selective memory disorder. He's like forgetting all the other times that he sinned. It's like, okay, all right, I understand. This time I have sinned. No, 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 no. 
Bro, you've just been a continuous sinning machine here, okay? This time I sinned, but all the time you sinned. And so Pharaoh may sound repentant, right? I know the Lord is righteous, my people and I are wicked. But he's only sorry about the consequences of sin and not the sin itself. That's the way it is for many people, isn't it? They're sorrowful over the repercussions and the consequences of sin, and yet they're not willing to repent of their sin. They're not willing to admit that they are a sinner. Oh, they'll be sorrowful over, oh, I made a mistake, I really blew it, but I'm not that bad of a person. I don't really need to repent, I'm not really a sinner. Look at verse 34 of chapter 9. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more. And he hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hard, neither would he let the children of Israel go as the Lord had spoken by Moses. So you begin to see this kind of pattern here. Pharaoh seems like he's letting up, but he just goes right back, reverts right back to saying, nope, you're not going. Well, chapter 10, we see the eighth plague, the plague of locusts. Now this is seen as, you know, throughout God's word is that, you know, judgment of God. We see in the book of Joel, we see in the book of Revelation, again, this idea of locusts coming and, and being this plague of God. So again, there's not the Egyptian sky goddess couldn't control these locusts. O- Osiris, the god of crop fertility, could not prevent the destruction of the crops that these locusts would come in and just raid the entire land and just leave it bare. Um, in fact, uh, we see this in, in, in recent history, this plague of locusts coming in and just leaving entire areas just completely barren. It was back in the 50s that heard about this plague of locusts that came. And uh, I think that was over in the Middle East somewhere to where I believe the number was 200,000, about 200,000 people died as a result of just the famine that ensued because of the plague of locusts that hit. So the ninth plague now, darkness, okay? Darkness hit the land. And remember, the Egyptians worshipped Ra, the sun god, So again, this is a direct hit upon this so-called deity that they had. But this was not just a darkness like an eclipse coming upon the land. Where it just slowly kind of fades to this kind of dusk period, you know, and just kind of dark. But, well, just, you know, the sun's kind of... No, this was darkness, it says in verse 21 of chapter 10. Look at that. Verse 21 of chapter 10. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. That's dark. I don't know what kind of darkness that is, but darkness to where they could feel it. It hit them right to the very core. That's the work of God. But yet, I love what we read there in verse 23. It says there, they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but... All the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Isn't that great? Again, God just showing that distinction between his people and the people of Egypt. They had light dwelling in their homes. That's the way it should be for us, isn't it? Because we're called to be a light in a dark world. And yes, we're surrounded by darkness. But I pray that we're those that have light just shining brightly from our homes, from our lives, from the things that we're doing that we're not allowing darkness to overtake, but we're invading the darkness with the light of Jesus Christ and making a difference in this world, reflecting who Jesus is and what he's done in our lives. Now, 
chapter 12, verse 27, a lot of people are going to have a problem with what we read here. And we also read it in chapter 9, verse 12. In fact, chapter 9, verse 12, chapter 10, verse 27. Here's what verse 27 says, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. So all along now, we've been reading over and over again that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. In chapter 9, verse 12, chapter 10, verse 27, we read, The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. A lot of people have a problem with that. They think, how can that be, God? That's not fair. Shouldn't Pharaoh have the opportunity to respond? Yeah. He did, and he does. And God has given him plenty of opportunity by showing him miracle after miracle of the greatness of God to Pharaoh. And yet every time that Pharaoh saw that, he hardened his heart. And so what that idea of hardened means is it's this idea of to strengthen or to confirm, to continue on in. And so what this is doing is this is not the Lord overruling Pharaoh's free will and saying, sorry, Pharaoh, I know that one day you really want to give your life to me, but I'm not going to allow that. That's not the case. It's not God overruling Pharaoh's free will. This is God simply strengthening the decision that Pharaoh has already made in his own heart. Pharaoh has hardened his heart. Pharaoh has established this position for himself that he is not going to follow God. And so God simply establishes Pharaoh in that position. He strengthens him in that position. I believe that the more that we yield ourselves to the Lord the more that God hardens our heart in that. Not in a bad way, but in a strengthening way. That he strengthens us as we look to God, as we seek God, as we avail ourselves to God, that God establishes us more so in those things. But the more that we choose to say, God, I don't want anything to do with you. I'm going to walk away. I don't want anything to do with you, God. I'm going to keep establishing myself in that, that God will just confirm that for you. Not overruling, but just simply confirming what you've already established in your own life so it's important that we look at it that way not as a cruel god but as a god simply establishing what this person's already said so chapter 11 we see the 10th play the death of the firstborn and it's announced in chapter 11 that would be the clincher for pharaoh this would be the thing that will cause him to release the israelites sad that he had to that pharaoh had to allow things to hit so close to home right that, that he had to see a, a firstborn son taken from him because of the hardness of his heart. But it'll be that thing that'll finally cause him to relent, not to surrender to God, but to surrender to what Moses is desiring to do. And that's to see his people go. Chapter 12, important chapter. Here we see the Passover now established and instituted. Kind of the main theme of the book here. The Passover was to be such a significant event that it becomes now the beginning of the year. Look at verse 2. This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the 10th on the of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for household. And the household is too small for the lamb. Let him and his neighbor Next to his house, take it according to the number of the persons, according to each man's need. You shall make, you, make your account for the lamb. Now, let me just stop right there. 
So God's changing the, basically the calendar year now for them, right? At this very monumental event of the Passover. This is to be a new beginning indeed for them. This is to be the time where they are being delivered. They're being redeemed. We serve a God of new beginnings. I am so thankful for that. Just as when we come to Christ, right? The idea is that we become born again. It's as though we have a, a second birthday now in a sense, right? We get to start fresh. I love what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We get a fresh start when we turn ourselves over to Jesus Christ and receive the salvation he has for us. And that was exactly the picture that the people of Israel were to have now with Passover, that God was doing something new, redeeming them and bringing them in as a nation to himself here. So it's a fresh start. Now this Passover would be a necessity for all. Uh, Understand that nobody was spared because they were Jewish and nobody was condemned just because they were Egyptian. It all came down to those who applied the blood of the lamb. That's who would be spared. You weren't spared because you identify with this people. Or you weren't condemned because you identify with this people. You were spared because you followed God's prescribed way of being spared. And that was through the blood of a lamb. So too, Jesus has become our Passover lamb. John would say in John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul refers to Jesus as our Passover in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. It's faith in his sacrifice and applying his blood as the payment for our sins that determines our salvation and eternity. Nobody gets spared or saved by being good. By following a law of morality, you got to follow the prescribed manner by which salvation comes. And that's through the blood of a lamb. It's through Jesus Christ. We'll look at chapter 12, verse 12. Let's read a couple verses here. Verse 12 of chapter 12 says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against the gods, against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are, And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and this plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. And on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. Verse 17. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. So the feast of unleavened bread became really kind of intertwined with Passover. Passover came and then the feast of unleavened bread followed. And it kind of became just meshed together. But the idea of the feast of unleavened bread was that the people were to make haste when they're fleeing out of Egypt. So they're to cleanse all their household of of any leaven, and they're to bake bread without leaven. So they're not going to wait for it to rise. They're just going to take that bread when it's time to go and be ready for the journey. 
so as to be done in, in haste, quickly. And so that's what they celebrated. They celebrated the deliverance of that last plague, the death of the firstborn. And that was the means by which God used to deliver them out of Egypt. And this Feast of Unleavened Bread, as they were to make haste as they fled out of Egypt. So that's what chapter 12 is all about. Then we see in verse 29, indeed, the death of the firstborn as that angel came over and struck all those that didn't have the blood applied to the doorpost. It says in verse 30, so Pharaoh rose in the night, he, all the servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Sad indeed. Chapter 13. We see then in chapter 12, people make their way. They get out of Egypt. They, they're on their way now. In chapter 13, we see this consecration of the firstborn. Since, since we've been redeemed, how we need to be living consecrated lives. Right? So God says, I spared your firstborn, so now they're mine. Consecrate them to me. Not, not in sacrifice, not in giving them up, but to say, Lord, I recognize that I wouldn't have this without you. So, Lord, they're yours. I want them to be dedicated to you. Just as we recognize, God, I wouldn't have life if it weren't for you. So, God, I'm living my life as a sacrifice unto you. Holy, acceptable, pleasing unto you, which is our, what? Reasonable service because of what Jesus has done for us. We're not to present our bodies a living sacrifice to God. Because we're his. He paid the price for us. It's the only reasonable thing to do. So here they're called to give their firstborn. It's consecration to the Lord. Set apart to him. Look at verse 17 of chapter 13. Verse 17 says, Then it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. What we read there is that God didn't take them the easy way or the quick way. He led them a different way. <laughs> I'm sure we've all related to that at times. God, why are you taking me through this? Wouldn't it be much easier to go that way? And yes, it might be easier in our minds, but God sees the big picture. And God knows that if I bring them right up the easy way, where they approach the land of Canaan, they're not ready for the battles that are going to ensue. And they're going to retreat high and fast right back to Egypt. So God's going to take them for a time in the land of the wilderness here. It's been well said it took one night to take Israel out of Egypt but it's going to take 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. That's the process that God is on right now with his people. Could have brought them right in the promised land, but they weren't ready for it. They would have been crushed. God says, I'm going to bring them through the wilderness 40 years because that's going to be the length of time it's going to take just to get Egypt out of them. No problem getting them out of Egypt. Getting Egypt out of them is going to be Another story altogether. But God will be good to them. God will be gracious to them. Because we see there that he's going to lead them by a pillar of cloud by day, verse 22, and a pillar of fire by night from before the people. So they're going to be in the wilderness. But guess what? God's going to shade them in the day. It gets hot out in that wilderness, out in that desert country. Sun being down you. Guess what? 
God says, I'm going to guide you. I'm going to lead you. But not just by speaking a voice saying, hey, follow me. I'm going to be a pillar of cloud that's going to protect you from the heat or from the, yeah, from the heat of the day. And I'm going to be a pillar of fire that will warm you at night when it gets cold in the desert. God providing for them graciously. Chapter 14, we get to the Red Sea crossing. Now, look at chapter 14. Let's read verses 1 to 4. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pi Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea. Opposite Baal Zephon, you shall camp before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the children of Israel, They are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord and they did so. So God led his people now right up to the Red Sea. Pharaoh says that they were closed in. They're boxed in right now, basically. They got mountains on either side of them. They got Pharaoh's army bearing down behind them and the Red Sea in front of them. You ever felt in your life like you're kind of trapped and you wonder, God, what are you doing? How did I end up here? You know what? They're right where God has them. And yet they're boxed in. And oftentimes what happens is that when we get boxed in, when we feel like we're, you know, trapped, we start to claw, we start to kick, we start to fight, we try to figure out how we got to get out of here. And yet look at what Moses says to them. Go over to verse 13. Moses said to the people, chapter 14, verse 13, do not be afraid, stand still. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Stand still. I hate standing still. I don't like standing still. I want to move. I want to get active. I want to make things happen. But you see, sometimes the Lord brings us to a point where we are outside of our control, we're outside of our resources, we got nowhere to go but to look up and say, God, you got to deal with this. And it's oftentimes that God leads us to those places. Why? So that he can be the one that gets all the glory for how he leads us through and how he delivers us. Are you able to let the Lord lead you in a way where you are completely surrendered, where you have to say, I got nothing here. I don't know what to do, but I know God knows what to do. I know God will provide a way. And that's what God is saying here. I'm going to do this work here with you so that I get the honor. So that I get the fame. So that Pharaoh knows that there is a God in heaven that is greater than anything else. So God brings them right up where they're trapped. They're boxed in. But God's going to do one of his greatest works here. Not one of his greatest works. He's just going to do a great work. They're all great. But... We know the story here. God led his people through the Red Sea and he leads them through on dry ground. All right? There are people that try to dismiss this miracle and say, well, the Red Sea is really just, you know, the Reed Sea and it's kind of a very marshy area right here. This time of year, it kind of dries up a little bit. So they were able to just walk through in just this kind of muddy, marshy area. It, was, it wasn't. But yet what happens is that 
God brings his people through on dry ground. It says that the waters were formed up like, like walls in your side. And then as Pharaoh's army comes chasing after them, God closes those waters, fills them back up to where they drowned. If this is just a reed sea, then it's a great miracle that he drowns Pharaoh's army in knee-deep water, right? That's a miracle right there. Either way, we've got a great work of God here. But there are people that try to dismiss it and discredit this miracle. God is at work here. So awesome. Well, this, of course, caused everyone now to rejoice. They come through on dry ground. Pharaoh's army is no longer a thorn in their side, right? And so they come through, and what happens? They begin to rejoice. They begin to sing. And in fact, in chapter 15 of Exodus, we have the first worship song being sung in the Bible. Listen, the last one that's being sung is in Revelation chapter 15. And that too is a song of deliverance. It's, a, it's called there, the, they sing the song of Moses. Those that are in heaven are singing the song of Moses. It's taken right from here, chapter 15 of Exodus. Look at verse 1 and 2. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang the song to the Lord and spoke saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song and he has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. I will sing unto the Lord, for he is triumphant. Anybody remember that song? Yes, all right. You, want, you weren't helping me out there. All right. The horse and rider song into the sea. The Lord, my God, my strength, my song. Now he is my victory. All right, that's about all he got. Okay, well, that's it right there. All right. I used to sing that growing up in church. A lot of you have sung that song in church, too. Taken right from here, the song of Moses. That's great. How many people have never heard that song before? All right, I'm teaching that to you after the service. Stick around. Okay. So, chapter 15, we go from a moment of rejoicing now to a moment of complaining. Verse 22, they come upon some water. And they are all excited. Of course, when you're out in the wilderness, man, you're excited for any kind of source of water. You need water. And they jump in and try to drink this water, but it's bitter. It's gone bad. And they complain well moses is given some interesting instruction moses cried out to the lord and the lord showed him a tree verse 25 when he cast it in the waters the waters were made sweet there he made a statute and an ordinance for them and there he tested them these were the waters of mara mara means bitterness i don't know if that was the name of the place back then they should have known if it was the case don't drink that water you're in bitter land right now but i think that was named afterwards all right so he throws a tree into it. I think that's a great, you know, just a, a, a great application or, or picture for us. Because, you know, there's going to be times we go through bitter experiences. But we need to bring, you know, the tree, the cross, into those things. We need to view everything through the lens of the cross and the work that Jesus has provided for us. Because when we bring the cross into those things, it makes those bitter experiences sweet once again for us and that's what happens there in mara well chapter 16 and if you have kids in kids club if you want to sneak out and go and grab them that would be great if you want to come back and join us we're going to wrap up very shortly here but chapter 16 now again traveling in the wilderness god would continue to kind of test his people all right but it, it was more so that he would show himself faithful 
and give opportunity for the people to grow in faith. Because now in chapter 16, they're, they're complaining once again. Moses is going to hear a lot of complaining, all right? Any of you with kids going on a road trip, all right? You know what this is like. That's kind of Moses right now. Are we there yet? Well, I'm hungry. I don't need to go to the bathroom. That's all that Moses is dealing with right now with all these people in the wilderness, all right? And so now they begin to complain. We're hungry. Oh, man, we had it so good back in Egypt. All the great food we had. And they start having, again, this kind of, you know, faulty memory here. You know, the enemy is always going to want to portray your past better than it was. To make you think, oh, man, was it really so bad? Was it really? Man, I kind of long for those days again. People get back into relationships with people because they remember, go, oh, man. When I was with that person, it wasn't that bad, was it? Man, I really long for that again. What I have right now, it's just not satisfying. But back then, oh. And, and the enemy likes to paint those things as being much better than they were. And it's like, if you could just remember, the reason you broke up with that person is because they were a psychopath. You want nothing to do? You couldn't escape them quick enough. You're like, I got to get out of there. And suddenly you start thinking, oh, maybe it wasn't that bad. Maybe I should call them up, see what they're doing. Let's see if they're on Facebook. No, 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 no. They drove you crazy. That's why you broke up with them. Don't go back. And the enemy wants to make these things look so much better than they were. And he's doing that with them. You remember all the great food you had in Egypt? No, you guys were, were, were treated harshly. You couldn't stand it in Egypt. You couldn't wait to get out of there. Don't, don't long back for that. Keep tracking with the Lord. Look to the Lord. And so God now begins to provide for them. Look at verse 4 of chapter 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, because God's going to now provide manna from heaven for you. They're going to go out, and they're going to see all the stuff on the ground. And they're going to be like, what is this? And that's the very name manna. It means what? What is it? That's the name manna, literally. Because they're all looking out, they're going, what is this stuff? And, and it says that it was like this white coriander seed and it tasted like wafers made with honey. Oh man. So it's like they wake up and they got like fresh Krispy Kreme donuts all over the ground. Literally, it's kind of like what it's like, all right? And they're just chowing. They're like, what is this? I don't care. This is golden, man. This is great. And God's providing for them. But God gives them, listen, you're to take only your quota for that day. Now it'd be very tempting to go, I'm going to heap up all because i want some for tomorrow i want to make sure that this is going to be around later next week so i'm going to take more than i need right now that'd be very tempting to do but god says take only what you need today and there's an important principle for us in that i think as we talk about this bread from heaven coming down and about us feeding ourselves sustaining ourselves and that comes for us through the word of god in in daily devotion and how it's very tempting to say well i'm going to read extra amount today so that i don't need to do this again for another couple days but god says i want you daily to wake up and come and receive what you need for that day and i want you the next day to wake up and do the same thing if you take more than you need it's not gonna last for them if they gathered up more than they need for that day the next day that would just go bad 
it wouldn't work. They need to get up each day in faith, take what they needed for that day, and in faith say, I'm going to trust that this is going to be here tomorrow. And I'm going to look to God to supply my needs for that day. And so it is for us how we need to daily be fed and supplied from the Lord what he has for us for each day. And they were told on the sixth day, take what you need. Don't gather on the, on the seventh day, the Sabbath. Um, you're to leave that alone. And, and what you gather on the sixth day is going to sustain you over those next couple days. So again, in faith, trusting what the Lord was going to do there. And so it's a great principle for us as well. Chapter 17, now <laughs> you're pigging out on Krispy Kreme donuts all the time. You're going to get pretty thirsty, right? So here they are now. Congregation, once again, begins to complain that there's no water for the people to drink. All right? Therefore, verse 2, the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? Do you understand something? That when we complain, we oftentimes think we're complaining against our situation. But what we're ultimately doing is we're complaining against the Lord. Why do you tempt the Lord? Why do you test the Lord? This is what we do oftentimes. I'm guilty of it. But how we need to say in each of our situations, whether they're bitter, whether they're difficult, again, look to Jesus. Say, God, would you help me through this? I don't want to be complaining. I don't want to be bitter. I want to see what you want to do in this and how you want to lead me through. So God tells Moses, Moses, go and take that rock or that rod and go to the rock there at, um, at Horeb. And strike it. Now that sounds like a pretty ridiculous thing to do, doesn't it? <laughs> the, a rock? Strike the rock? What's going to happen? I mean, I'm expecting, Lord, take me to a rock that's got like a little tap on it. With a little, you know, faucet that I can turn on. What do you mean? Hit it with my rod. Doesn't make sense. But yet that's what Moses is told to do. And Moses does it. And as he strikes the rock, water gushes out. Now the order is quite wonderful in what we've just been looking at here. Because in chapter 16, we see the bread from heaven. It represents Jesus coming down to this world. The rock being struck now, Jesus Christ. Our rock, Peter, in fact, or sorry, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, says that Jesus was that rock. Jesus is struck now as he's crucified on the cross. But what happens? As he's crucified on the cross, as he ascends to heaven, the Holy Spirit is poured out, this living water. Jesus said in John 7, if anyone thirsts him, come unto me. You receive living water. This he spoke, it says, of the Holy Spirit. So the order is so wonderful. Jesus comes down as bread from heaven to supply what we need. He's stricken upon the cross. Struck, but as he does, the Holy Spirit is poured out. And how we need that Holy Spirit. This is the transformed life now as we look to Jesus and receive what he has for us. This is the transformed life. Listen, it's not always going to be smooth sailing for us. Because look at what we see at the end of chapter 17. The enemy comes. It's wonderful to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But understand that the flesh is still. The flesh was once dominant you see. Right? Until we came to Christ. Until we see the Holy Spirit. The flesh was once dominant. Now it's just kind of put up and down. And sort of put in the basement. But the flesh is still trying to rear its ugly head. It's still trying to get back on top. It's still trying to have its way. That's why we need to be daily filled with the Holy Spirit. Because the flesh is ever present this side of eternity. 
and we need the Holy Spirit. Because notice what happens now. Verse 8. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. They just had great things going on. Bread from heaven. Manna. Krispy Kreme donuts. We've got quail to feed with meat now in chapter 16. We've got water coming out of a rock, man. Oh, man. It's the glory days. But yet now the enemy comes. And the Amalekites the descendants of Amalekites in scripture become a picture of the flesh. And so here we have to understand that yes, we have new life in Christ. We receive the Holy Spirit, but we are still engaging in battle, which is why it's so paramount that the Holy Spirit is filling us, empowering us and leading us because the flesh wants to have its way. The Amalekites come against them. How do we defeat that? Well, look what Moses does. He goes up the mountain. Takes Aaron and her, and he begins to intercede for them. And as long as he had his arms out, that posture of kind of praying, seeking the Lord, the Israelites, led by Joshua, were defeating the Amalekites. As soon as their arms kind of dropped down, the Amalekites began to have their way to the point where he had Aaron and her holding up his hands in this intercession prayer. And in so doing, they received a great victory that day. How we need to turn to the Lord in prayer and daily be yielding to Him, surrendering to Him and seeking Him for our help. And so there, at the end of chapter 17, verse 15, and Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with the Malik from generation to generation. So God just does this great work for them here. Now, chapter 18, last chapter we're going to get to. How are we doing? Oh, boy. Okay. Chapter 18, real quickly here, because it will lead us right into picking up in chapter 19 next week, which is a great place to pick up him up until this time chapter 18 moses has kind of been the overseer of all he's been the guy in charge the leader he's been god's appointed leader but jethro now here's moses's father-in-law seems to think this is a bad idea now we're not sure this was of god or not or not there are a lot of people that kind of argue this wasn't really god's plan this is more just kind of a plan of man jethro's just exercising worldly wisdom you can fall on either side and and it's not going to make a lot of difference um but in all counsel, what we need to do is we need to take it before God and seek his will. Look at what Jethro says in verse 23. Because Jethro, what he does is he sees Moses that's just kind of bringing counsel to all the people. And, and Moses is just inundated with all these needs. And Jethro's like, what are you doing, Moses? You can't take all this upon yourself. You're going to just run yourself ragged. You've got to appoint some people now that are going to help you and help you bear the burdens for you. So he says in verse 23, if you do this thing and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure and all those people will also go to their place in peace. Now that's good counsel right there. If you do this thing and God so commands you, don't just listen to what people are saying. We need to seek the Lord. Now whether or not this was God's plan or just a plan of man, it's important that we are together working together and, and that you know we understand god has that plan for all of us here to be working together serving together now warren wearsby said this believers face open and obvious attacks of the flesh as with the malik but also subtle ideas of the flesh as with jethro 
Certainly Moses could have done whatever work God called him to do, for God's commandments are his enablements. How easy it is for us to pity ourselves, to feel that nobody else cares, and that God has given us too great a burden. For God's solution to this problem, Isaiah 40, verse 31, he says, to wait upon the Lord. You know, those that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings on eagles. And that's the key for all of us. Whether we have people coming alongside or not, the key is that we are those waiting on the Lord, seeking God in all these things. Well, we'll leave it right there. And we'll pick it up in chapter 19 next week as we see this great scene unfold at Mount Sinai. And we see God's top 10 list for us. All right. Uh, Let's pray. And we'll be dismissed. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together tonight to look at this chunk of scripture. And there's a lot there for us. And we pray that you will just really, again, reveal to us by your spirit the things that you have for us. The things that we can take home and and just kind of mull over and learn from and, and, and grow from and be challenged in perhaps too. And so just continue to speak to us through your word and feed us and lead us, Lord. Thank you tonight, God, for redemption, for redeeming us, for being our deliverer who's delivered us from Egypt, from this world, who's delivered us from sin and bondage. You've set us free, God, and we are so grateful. So may we live our lives for you and worship you every step of the way, for you are good. And we ask this now in your name, Jesus. Amen.